every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Heidi Malin, CMO of Workfront. Heidi has held the position of CMO six times over an impressive two-decade career of developing and executing marketing strategies that drive growth. On this episode, Heidi illustrates her approach to pivoting Workfront's marketing strategies in response to the paradigm shift that companies are experiencing in 2020, and she explains why you need to be viewing your marketing dollars as an investment, not just an expense. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Heidi Malin, CMO of Workfront, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and your host for today. And I am joined by special guest, Heidi, how are you? I am great. I am super excited to talk to you about Demand Gen and get all of your Demand Gen uh, hot takes, regular takes, medium takes. I want to start out with how did you get your first job in Demand Gen? Well, it's probably even before Demand Gen was even a term that was used. And it was really where I learned the importance of demand generation and connection to brand. I actually started my career in an advertising agency that was focused on technology brands. And one of the insights that I had when I was doing work on some of the biggest technology brands on the planet was the moment that we could connect brand with, at that time, Demand Gen was primarily direct mail and events. And the moment that we could connect brand to the execution for direct mail and events, the overall success and lift that our brand investment was providing to, at that time, direct mail, as an example, programs, was amazing. And at that time, working at a brand advertising agency was really cool, but being involved in direct mail was not quite as cool. But for me, that connection was something that I took into what ended up being my first official demand gen role at PeopleSoft. And having that connection between brand and demand was really how I started my career. And so I'd say it was very early days and it wasn't even called demand gen at that time. And so flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about your role as CMO at Workfront. So as the CMO of Workfront, I'm responsible for all of the marketing on a global basis for the business. And when we think about managing everything from awareness of the company and our overall brand profile, as well as driving engagement and demand with our customers and prospective customers and developing customer loyalty and improving the customer experience is all part of my remit at Workfront. Let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, 
you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? Trust trees where we can go to feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. What would you say your demand gen strategy is? So at Workfront, we have a very focused demand gen strategy that's aligned tightly with our field selling organization, and we do that through a target account strategy. And so we've identified our top tier target accounts, those companies that we most that we most want to sell into and those companies that are most interested in buying from us. And so being able to identify those companies and investing our demand dollars in creating engagement with those target accounts is really where it all starts. How does demand gen fit within your org structure and how do you structure to create demand? So there's a couple of places. We have a function, we call it integrated campaigns and digital marketing. And that really composes our demand gen engine, if you will, from a programmatic perspective. And so we have a campaign-oriented approach, again, keeping in mind that it's a target account strategy approach as well, so highly focused, but a campaign-oriented approach where our campaign managers essentially put together the best mix of programs, demand programs, as well as awareness programs to meet the targets for engaging with those target accounts. And so that integrated campaign team, along with the expertise in digital, is where most of that demand generation expertise lives. Now, I would also mention that I think all of the teams within marketing, whether it be a corporate communications function or a customer advocacy function, for example, or an events team, everyone has eyes on their contribution to creating demand and engagement. And so it's a thread that runs throughout the entire organization, but also a specific responsibility for the integrated campaigns and digital team. In addition, our operations function, I mean, today the technology that supports a marketing organization is complex and also extremely effective. And so ensuring that we have the right technologies that underpin our target account strategy becomes really important and definitely a specific focus area. And we have a team, a marketing operations team that focuses not only on the technology, but also the analytics and reporting to ensure that we're meeting our targets. So speaking of targets, what does your persona look like? Who are you selling to? What does that buying team look like? So personas and buying teams get really complicated when you're talking about enterprise software. When you look at the number of opportunities that we have, they're in the $100,000 range as a single purchase. It's a committee-oriented decision in most cases for most large companies. And so we have a number of personas, and it differs by department that we're selling into. So we tend to land inside a large organization in either the IT organization or in the marketing organization. And it's generally an IT PMO or project management office or a marketing operations or creative operations team where we land. Essentially, the persona will differ based on which department we land in. And then we tend to expand as a business from there. So we tend to land in either IT or marketing. 
again, with an operations lens, and then we expand from there into other departments within the business. And, you know, obviously, you know, hey, hey now, marketing, uh, I know those folks. So as you're looking at this type of land and expand strategy, again, as you said, popular for enterprise, especially popular, you know, a lot of times in IT or, or the technology org, you know, that operational stuff and then marketing as pretty much the two folks who touch technology the most. Obviously, do you have a solution where you're reframing how people work? And I'm curious, do you ever have that kind of moment where it's like, well, almost every single type of enterprise organization does need work front. So how do we focus those efforts? That's a great question because that's one of the challenges. One of the reasons why we have a very focused target account strategy and why we're focused on land and expand. Every department within a business, we believe, needs a system for managing work. And enterprises are starting to truly treat work within their company as a tier one asset. All companies have a financial system. So whether it be an Oracle or an SAP, as an example, NetSuite as their financial solution. And they have a system, an operational system of record for financials that they run. Same thing holds true for people. You have a human resources, human capital management system, whether it's a workday or an SAP or success factors, as an example, you have a system in place and treating your people information as a tier one asset. We believe that companies in the future, companies that are going to thrive, are going to be businesses that treat work inside their organization as a tier one asset. And there needs to be one place for managing work. Whether you're managing marketing campaigns, whether you're designing products, whether you're driving a transformation project, you need to have one central place for managing all that work, whether it be the ideas about the work, the actual content related to the work, the complex business process, it's just back and forth. There needs to be one place to create visibility into the work going on inside a large enterprise. And so that's what our mission is, to help people do their best work. And we do that through about 3,000 companies, including 10 of the 10 top brands on the planet. So we believe that work is changing. You know, the last few months, if they have taught us anything, is the future of work is different than what we expected and that we needed to adapt. And we've believed that work is going to change. And certainly with people working remotely today, those changes are happening. Well, and one of the other things is that it seems like everybody needs to accelerate that digital agenda. You know, I've talked to a ton of CIOs about this, that it's like they used to beg for time on their CFO's calendar to convince them to, you know, hey, this is our digital transformation timeline, or or, or they hate that word and they say like, you know, hey, this is <laughs> this is our roadmap of what we need to do over the next five years. And then now all of a sudden it's like, wait, 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 we have your attention? Like, let's shove as much in through the door for our five-year agenda into one year, into six months, into three months? How have you kind of shifted in that respect? Well, I think your point is such a great one. In fact, I was just on a call earlier today where Gene Cornfield from Accenture, so Accenture obviously is working with hundreds of companies in walking through their digital transformation processes. And one of the things that Gene said earlier today that really hit home for me was all of Accenture's clients had 
digital transformation on their agenda. But after COVID hit, it became the agenda item. So it wasn't amongst four other priorities for the business. It became the priority for the business. And so that is something that we are seeing from our customers as well. We've had customers that have Workfront have been managing work as a tier one asset in Workfront that were able to pivot more quickly than other companies because all of their information was in one place. They didn't require being in the same building or down the hall from one another to get work done. They actually had a place for their work and were able to continue to work regardless of what their work location was, where many companies fumbled a little bit out of the gate because they didn't have the technology or the infrastructure to support a remote workforce in the way that became required immediately. And so they had to scramble. The companies that were able to pivot the most quickly are those businesses that had more visibility into the work going on in their organizations. And that's the benefit the work management platform provides. It's been interesting to watch the acceleration in the work management category in the last few months because companies are realizing that it's not just those, I'll call them first bucket technologies that they needed to think about, whether that's a video platform solution, Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever their video solution was that they really needed to accelerate. It's also how the organization gets work done and tracks work and has visibility into what's going on because you can't adjust and adapt to a new situation if you don't know what's going on today. And so it's that's been a very interesting thing for us to watch, not only with our own business and our own pivot, but with a pivot that we've watched our customers go through, especially those that have been on the front line of COVID. That's been interesting to watch. And I do think that this new world of work is real and is something that we're going to have to adjust to. And if marketers... We have not learned anything over the course of the last few months. It's that we have to be able to adapt much more quickly in order to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk more about Land and Expand as clearly your strategy to go about this, where Land and Expand is something that, you know, potentially in this type of new scenario could have some shifts and some differences and someone saying like, okay, hey, we weren't ready to get the marketing team on board or maybe IT was a little bit ready. And now they're saying like, actually, no, I think we just need the whole company on something. But I'm just curious, like, how do you structure demand pre-COVID? How did you structure demand in that land and expand strategy? Like, are you specifically putting, you know, 80% of your effort into new accounts just for the marketing and IT orgs, and then you have like additional content or additional, you know, activities or events or campaigns once you have that account that are a lot more customer success driven or or what's the demand gen activity there? So largely our demand programs have been historically focused on net new. So when we land, ensuring that we land successfully And that has been a department by department focus. We call it buying centers inside of Workfront. So we generally land in either a marketing or an IT buying center. And we have specific campaigns designed to attract net new customers into those buying centers. And we leverage things that everyone would assume that we leverage intent data, purchase data, for example, that help us find the right companies 
to focus in on through our target account strategy. In addition, what we also do is once we've landed is looking at the opportunities across their enterprise to expand into other departments. And we're doing that with campaign-oriented approaches into other adjacent departments. So for example, with marketing, there's an adjacency with new product development. So when you think about the programs that you need to run in order to get a campaign out the door for a new product, some of those motions overlap into new product development inside a manufacturing business, for example. And so looking at those adjacent teams to inform our expansion strategy is how we look at it. And in addition to having the kind of data that we do, that we can look at how are our customers interacting with our platform today? Where where does it make the most sense within their organization to expand to? What's the type of information that they're looking for? And through more typical CSM and AE strategy from an engagement standpoint with the people on the customer team. Let's get into our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you can open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. So what are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Here's what I'm going to start with. My answer would have probably been completely different pre-March of 2020. When I think about an enterprise buying cycle, and we touched on earlier the fact that that tends to be a team-based or committee-based decision, and it's not based on us engaging one time with one person on that team, it's generally a series of interactions over the course of time, and those interactions build to a final outcome. But it's not one thing. So what's your, you know, I have folks ask me all the time, what's the best channel? What channel should we put all our eggs in in order to be the most successful? And the answer is there is no one secret channel, but it is a mix. Prior to March of 2020, our mix included both digital as well as in-person engagement through large-scale events, trade shows, conferences, programs like that, field marketing events, as an example, our mix included both. And all of a sudden, March of 2020 rolls along and in-person events become something that not only are we not going to be doing, but we actually are prohibited from doing given the COVID situation. And so when I think about what are the things that I would never cut out Content. Content is king. The content that we develop drives all of our channels and is the most important asset that we invest in. I would say the next area that would be uncuttable, so to speak, would be our digital programs today. That is an area where over the course of the last 12 months, we've had to improve significantly But over the last five months, we've had to really rethink how our digital marketing programs go because we're trying to make up for demand that we would have created through investment in sponsorships, large-scale events, and conferences in a different way. So being able to 
pivot our large-scale customer event to a virtual setting required a new set of muscles and a new approach. And those are things that we had to learn on the fly and we had to do it very quickly. And for me, the good news is, is that the outcome that we're going for is the same. However, the mix changed pretty dramatically. And that's one of the struggles I think many B2B companies have today is those companies that were able to pivot quickly and to offset the loss of in-person type programs for enterprise software. Those companies are the ones that are thriving today. You know, you mentioned that shift and, you know, reallocating resources accordingly. How did that affect relationship with sales? How did that affect how your sellers sell and how you help those folks? Because it seems like if that's what they were used to, then you have to figure that piece out as well. I think it's a paradigm shift that we're going through right now that is going to not just change our marketing programs and tactics. That's sort of the, of course, piece. But I think it's going to change how organizations buy enterprise software. And that's going to have to change our selling motions and to support how companies are going to be buying in the future. Like gone are the days of, you know, the steak lunch at Smith and whatever, Walensky to close a large enterprise software deal. Like that's over with. And looking at the engagement with our prospective customers and with our customers from a digital perspective is what we need to focus in on. And understanding that engagement so that we can leverage it in the selling process. And to me, that's probably one of the most important things that we have learned out of the pivot in response to COVID is that it's the entire business process that needs to change. It's not just a marketing tactic here or there. We don't have an in-person event anymore, so we have to figure out something different. That's like the little part of the problem. The big part of the problem is understanding through that entire cycle as we're supporting a prospective customer through a buying process, how do the interactions need to change and how do we need to adjust in order to support a new buying motion from our prospective customers? That to me is the, is the big nut that we're cracking right now. What does that look like? How does that buying process shift and change? And oh, by the way, it hasn't just shifted and changed due to COVID, but we also have more millennials in the decision-making process today. And how do they buy and research software versus their predecessors, for example, and adjusting to those changes? Those are all things that I think that marketing teams and sales teams need to be tackling right now. And if they aren't, they're behind. Yeah. So what are, what are some things that you saw in those shifts that, that you were able to, uh, to implement or, or respond with? A um, couple things that I think that we did well and things that I think that we have room for improvement. One of the things that we did well as an organization is pivoting our large customer conference. So we had expected to have about 2,500 people travel to Florida as well as London to attend our in-person customer conference that included mostly customers, but a percentage of prospective customers as well, as well as industry analysts, as an example, and pivoting that program to a completely virtual platform. That was a big pivot. One of the reasons why we were able to do it as quickly as we did 
is that we were able to track the entire project in Workfront. So we knew all the steps that we had to go through and we knew what we had to adjust to a virtual platform. And we knew the people that needed to be involved every step of the way and had a template already ready to go that we just implemented. And so we didn't have to make up new processes. We didn't have to um, start from scratch. We didn't start with a clean slate. We were able to start from what we already know and adjust. And that to me was a really important example of the power of a work management platform. And we've heard it from consistently from customers. Uh, Jennifer Johnson from Informatica is one of our customers and she's the director of global programs for Informatica. And she had to go through the same process that we did. And she basically said, you know, Workfront allowed Informatica to get their customer conference out the door in this new environment and to pivot quickly. And so we're hearing that story time and time again, and it's an important one. And I don't believe that this is the last pivot or the last change that we're going to see. I think that, as I said earlier, I think one of the things that we've learned through this, if nothing else, is that we need to be able to adapt and be flexible and be more agile in how we approach our marketing programs. So you touched on this a little bit, but is there one you know channel or tactic that you know, you've seen that really isn't working or, you know, didn't work for you all or is fading away? Certainly there are channels that are changing for sure. When you think about the implications of regulations like GDPR, for example, on the ability to email, that becomes a channel that is changing. I don't necessarily think it's going away, but it is definitely changing. I also think in terms of what channels give us the ability to be very focused and targeted in our investments. And so we're prioritizing those channels that allow us to more accurately target our target accounts. And that to me is really important because I believe that we have the tools today to be very specific about who our messages go to and leveraging those tools becomes really important because our spend levels aren't necessarily going up, but the pressure on marketing teams to deliver engagement and demand is going up. And so the best way to do that is to ensure the dollars are spent. I mean, the way that I explain it with a B2B brand like Workfront is I'm less concerned if my next door neighbor knows who Workfront is unless they lead a marketing operations team or an IT PMO, for example then I really care. And so ensuring that our dollars are not spent on general awareness or broad-based channels and focusing in on channels that can deliver against our target accounts is the most efficient way for us to invest our dollars. Yeah, you totally nailed it. And and I'm glad you brought that up because it's a great way of putting it. And it's not something that we always do, right? Many um, you know, podcast episodes ago, I, I had a chance to sit down with uh, with Chandar, the CMO of Coupa, and you know one of the things that he always kind of says is like, as CMO, you kind of have three things that you can focus on at any given time, like three kind of like go to market things, and if they're not, you know, as as soon as you start that sprawl, you're probably just going to end up getting to a point where you just have too much stuff going on and you lose focus and you lose, um, you know, you lose the targeting. But what you're talking about there 
isn't just sprawl. You're talking about waste, like advertising waste, uh, you know, waste of effort, waste of time. And, uh, and we don't have to do that anymore. There's, there's technology that supports us doing that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Now that technology landscape is complicated. There's no doubt about that. But there's technology that allows us to be hyper-focused and targeted in what messages we put out there and who we put them out to. And so I, I think of, I always talk about marketing as an investment versus an expense. Not every CFO agrees with me, but, um, but I think of it as an investment and it's an investment portfolio. And if we want to make sure that each one of those dollars is used to its fullest impact, we want to make sure we get to the people that have the highest likelihood to buy from us. And that's our target accounts. Well, and it's, and it's the highest amount of influence and leverage that you can create within those folks. And I think that that's where you get beyond the cookie cutter marketing analysis of like, yeah, we do, we do, you know, ABM or we do, you know, targeted. It's like, yeah, but if you look at your budget, that's not really how you're spending your money, right? It's like, you know, the add-on 101, like how is that targeting, you know, you know, IT ops? Like, I just don't really understand that. And again, not that there's anything wrong with like brand advertising. I think that how you do brand advertising, as we've, you know, heard from a lot of CMOs on this show, like is, is really critical. But the idea of like brand advertising, you know, to your target accounts is the important thing and how how you can be relevant to those folks. Um, so how, how do you look at that? How do you look at like the depth of engagement rather than just like the, oh, it's an impression? Yeah, so the way that I like to think of it is it's about creating engagement across a buying committee, if you will, inside an organization. And so one of the things that is possible today is looking at that engagement all the way down to from an account level, all the way down to an individual and how are they interacting and engaging or not in our programs and offerings. So whether that is engaging on our engagement on our website, whether it's engagement in in a virtual event, some sort of program that we're doing, downloading a piece of content, like understanding who's engaging with what is really important. And it can't just be about that, I'm going to call it fictitious. I know it's not fictitious impressions, but the impressions number is interesting, but less relevant than engagement numbers. And for me, that's what the ABM technologies have allowed us to do. Now, I'm really careful in in how I talk about ABM versus a target account strategy because I believe that account-based marketing on its own is not enough. It has to be a target account-based strategy that aligns the entire revenue cycle. That includes marketing and sales. And so by saying ABM, I think we get a little bit lost in the fact that this this is a marketing skill and we all need to have ABM people on our team or we need to have ABM technologies. That is true, but it's not just about ABM. And frankly, the goodness of ABM is just, it provided, the ABM technology provided the ability for us as marketers to do what we've always said we should be doing, which is targeting the right people with our message. That's the way I tend to think about it. And I think that ABM technology is terrific and has helped us advance as marketing organizations. I think it is a skill set that's critical and important, but it's not something new. 
it's technology that has allowed marketers to do what we've always been trying to do. Yeah, uh, it's it's a great point. I think it you know goes back to if you if you have a hundred thousand visitors on your website every month and you're like, wow, we're really great versus the company that has 17,000 visitors on their website every month, like, oh, we're not doing as good, but you know, whatever, 10,000 of those are the, the 10,000 target accounts that you're going after, or more importantly, a thousand of those or 10,000 of those are 10 different personas within those, those target accounts. Like that's the Nirvana. Yeah, that is the nirvana. And and we're not quite there yet. It's not quite as clean and easy as that, but but we're getting there. And um, and that's why I am very passionate about ABM technologies, but I very seldom use the term ABM because it's been overused and over-promoted. Everyone's like, I'm an ABM expert. Okay, well, that's interesting, but like, what is it that you're accomplishing for your organization? And isn't ABM just a category of software that allows us to deliver on the premise of marketing that's always been there. How do you view your website? Um, I think the website is the core of our demand strategy. So when I think about our website, it should be, it's our front door to the world, but it's also the core of our demand strategy. All roads should lead to our website. All roads, I love it. Because once we do that, we can capture the people that are engaging with us. You know, it's just, it's a great way if you think of it as, you know, your website's your storefront, essentially. It's the Finding Nemo, um, all drains lead to the ocean. Right. Yeah, you got to make sure that that happens. Same thing. Do you have a favorite campaign that you've worked on at Workfront? I do, actually. It's a campaign that we introduced. You're probably not going to believe me when I tell you this story, but we it's a campaign we introduced in late January of 2020. And we felt really smart about it. And the campaign concept was that that companies that thrive or there's are those companies that make bold decisions and work boldly and um, so we launched that campaign and it felt smart and it was clever and it's all about treating you know this new world of work and the fact that companies need to be treating work as a tier one asset and companies that work boldly are able to do amazing things so you understand the concept well, I have to tell you that in March of 2020, it became really smart because all of a sudden we were hearing stories about our own employees working boldly, things that they were having to do that were unnatural because we pivoted to a work from home policy overnight. Stories from customers, things that they were able to accomplish um, in order to work boldly that helped their business catapult forward during this time frame, especially those companies who are on the front lines of fighting COVID. And we've heard those stories over and over of companies that have truly leaned in to the challenges going on and been able to overcome them by having that confidence, that ability to do things differently, that ability to focus on work as a tier one asset and truly work boldly. And so it's my favorite, not just because it's timely and relevant, but I just think it's so spot on when I think about what, what's happened in that time frame since we introduced it in January of 2020. And so that is definitely my favorite campaign We've used it in our outbound and our demand efforts. We've used it in our social efforts, in highlighting companies that are working boldly and demonstrating the ability to navigate through uncertain times. And the relevancy of it went 
like through the roof. And I love when that happens with a campaign where you you feel it's right, but then something happens and you're like, oh no, no, now I know that it's right. Well, and you have such cool customer stories as well. I love the story about Galaxy's Edge. I don't know if, if, if you can share anything about that, but it's just like you have customers that are working on really cool stuff and hearing how Workfront bring those things to life is really interesting. Well, Galaxy's Edge is such a cool story for us to be able to tell. Anyone who's been in marketing for any amount of time knows that it's generally uh, talking about Disney is is one of those things where you don't get a lot of opportunity to talk about a Disney project. And we were lucky enough to have the folks that worked on Galaxy's Edge. It's Disney's creative agency called Yellow Shoes that actually was responsible for bringing Galaxy's Edge to life. And the underpinning of that project was in Workfront. They told that story, so we had the opportunity to share that story as part of our LEAP conference, our customer conference. And it is a great story. It's a relevant story. And we have so many other stories about amazing brands that are driving their businesses with Workfront. And one of my favorites is the T-Mobile story how T-Mobile has leveraged Workfront for all of its brand programs and bringing those programs to life. And they are so passionate about Workfront inside their organization. And it's really fun to see a significant brand, whether it be through Disney Yellow Shoes or through companies like T-Mobile, Under Armour, and as an example, Workday, drives all of their marketing programs in Workfront. Gets a little complicated. Workday is a Workfront customer. We have a ton of great stories, and I believe that our customers are one of our most competitive weapons that we have, and telling those stories can be extremely powerful in the industry because we have some of the largest enterprises in the world that run core parts of their business on Workfront. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, how do you think about customer success marketing as part of your demand gen? Because when you're talking about something like, you know, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the complexity of the problem is inherent of like making, you know, a Disney property is so, is such an insane thing for like any of us to like think about, like, how do you plan all of this? And it's like, well, they use Workfront. So sharing those types of stories and how different they are, I'm just curious, like, how do you kind of, you know, weaponize that for lack of a better term? There's a number of things. So first of all, I am, I am passionate as our customers are our biggest asset and we have a team that focuses on customer advocacy. So they work directly with our customer success team, but the team is really focused on developing those relationships with some of our most uh, critical and strategic customers and developing relationships so we can get to the point where we can help them tell their stories. And for me, the most important part is helping them tell their stories because it's not our story, it's their story. And so we have a customer advocacy team that works on traditional programs like our customer advisory board But it goes one, two, and three steps further than that in developing relationships 
with the people that are responsible and are champions of Workfront inside their organizations. We have a customer advisory board made up of 20 plus of the largest enterprises on the planet. And the engagement that we have with them is not from a technology perspective, they need this feature, that feature, or this capability or that capability. It's actually about these individuals inside their organizations are driving change with the way the company works. Um, One of my favorite examples is actually one of our customers from a company that I can't disclose, but it's a very large media company. And they run all of their licensing to all of their external licensees. So if you think about being a media company that might have uh, characters, for example, that they license out to a lunchbox or a pajama company and go through a process of approving their how that image and character is being leveraged, Um, that entire process for this very large media company is run through Workfront. And uh, the person who drives that program sits on our customer advisory board. And it is a relationship that is extremely valued. And then we're able to tell their stories. And our customer advisory board becomes a feeder to our customers telling their stories. And uh, that, to me, doing that elegantly, because it's not just about a case study and a data sheet. Yes, check, we, we produced the case study and XYZ company allowed us to write down their case study. It's about how do we tell that story and how do we support them in telling their story? And that's a different mindset. And that's what our customer advocacy team focuses on. And we drive that messaging and content throughout all of our demand channels. I want to ask you about 50 questions about about your customer advisory board because that sounds pretty incredible. But we have to get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension whether that's with your board, your sales teams, your competitors, or just anyone else throughout your career. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Well, I think um, certainly the most recent changes that we've all gone through as someone who's been in enterprise software for a long time, as someone who's been primarily in B2B, and the impact that the changes that COVID-19 has brought to marketers have been significant. And I would say that's like a, oh, gosh, how do we do this? And how do we ensure, how do we take learnings from our B2C teammates? And what are some of the things that B2C businesses are doing today from a digital perspective that we need to learn from, from a B2B perspective? And um, and how do we need to think about our not only our engagement, but also the technology and infrastructure that we have to create that engagement and how do we think about it differently. And I would say the whole last five plus months have been sort of that dust up of, oh my, all the things that we knew were effective are changing and they're not changing slowly. They're changing 
immediately? And how do we adjust and continue to drive demand to support the pipeline that's required for our selling organization? And so I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty major one. Let's get to our next segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick hits, Heidi. Are you ready? Yes. Number one, do you have a hobby or habit that you picked up in shelter in place? Gardening. How about a favorite book or TV show or movie or anything that you've been binging recently? Yellowstone. Oh, yeah. All right. I, th- I thought you meant like going to Yellowstone. And I went, that sounds <laughs> incredible. No. Do you have a first place? You're also in the Sunny Bay area. Do you have a first place that when we can sit down in a restaurant that you want to go eat? So many. Anywhere in uh, Napa Valley. What is your best piece of advice for a CMO who is trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? Talk to a millennial. Ooh, that's a good one. We have never heard that. That's a great answer. <laughs> well, Heidi, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any uh, any final thoughts? Obviously, everybody should check out Workfront. If you're if you're a marketing ops person and you're listening to this, uh, you know you should definitely check out Workfront. Um, but uh, any other stuff to plug? No, I think I think I'm great. Enjoyed the conversation very much. Awesome. Thanks, Heidi. All right. Bye. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.